And Father, we thank you that you are changeless, the eternal one in the eternally present tense. You are the same to Abraham as you are for us, and you will be the same in your coming as you are today. And we thank you that you're changeless. You are stable in the midst of a changing world, and we give you praise for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, choir and orchestra. Turn in your Bibles as we continue our messages in Revelation. We come near the end as we arrive at chapter 20, almost to the end, and certainly this is the last of all the judgment passages. We have seen the words of exhortation to the churches of Asia Minor. We have seen that Christ is worthy to open the seals. And then the seals and the bowls and the trumpets are ascending, exploding cycles of God's judgment on this world, all coming to a close. And then Christ comes at Armageddon after the tribulation, sets up his kingdom, the devil is bound, and at the end of that thousand years, he's loosed for a season. And then we arrive at our scene today in chapter 20 and verse 11. I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second Death, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And the passage brings us to the last great statement of judgment. I call it judgment at the great white throne. Since you were a child, you have heard of the great white throne judgment. It has been preached. It has been declared and yet many of us don't understand. There's still the idea that there will be this great single general judgment. No, there is the judgment seat of Christ at the rapture. There is the tribulation. There is the binding of Satan, the thousand-year millennial reign, the loosing of Satan for a season, and then the great white throne judgment. When I was a little boy, they were singing this. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you what? See. And be careful, little ears, what you? And be careful, little hands, what you? And be careful, little feet, where you? And you know, you could go, be careful, little nose, what you? No, 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 we didn't sing that. <laughs> but the point of that little children's gospel song was to say, in the simplest way we could say it to children. Kids, 
God knows absolutely everything you do. It is awesome to me. You know, laser holography will let you put all of the Library of Congress into uh, a little sugar cube, if you wanted, the size of a sugar cube. Can you imagine that? Uh, we're making such rapid strides in storing knowledge. I don't think that it's any problem for God to have recorded on the world's largest, on the universe's largest, on the cosmos's largest computer, everything you ever thought and everything you ever said and everything you ever did and everything you and I ever intended. Uh, we were in Nashville yesterday to marry a nephew of mine, my brother who's the president of Palm Beach Atlantic. Had, one of his boys is... is uh, uh, was a graduate of Belmont and, and met a young lady there and married her yesterday. And uh, we went to the Belmont University for there in downtown Nashville for the reception. And Shirley and I couldn't stay long because we needed to get back. It's so much fun driving through the, the mountains between Knoxville and Asheville in the dark, in the rain, that we just had to time it exactly. So you went through there at the stormiest time, lightning storming, and everything's always under construction up there, you know. If the rocks haven't fallen, then... 17 trucks twisted and, you know, it's just a nice little obstacle course for driver's ed through the mountains there. But as we uh, slipped into the reception, uh, we made a plate of food for ourselves and uh, thought, well, we'll put that in the car. And as we walked out to the car to get our old clothes so I could take off my good clothes, I didn't want to ride in a suit all evening. And uh, there was a little 10-year-old girl that I noticed had watched me at the wedding and she had watched me at the reception and she had watched everything I took uh, on my plate. You know, she was the meatball inspector from uh, the cholesterol general's office of the United States federal government. And uh, uh, there she watched as Shirley and I walked out to the car and, and uh, uh, I, I noticed as I... I set the food in the car while we got our old clothes to go back in and change. As I came back in, I, you know, turned the car on and left it running, left the air conditioning on, you know, keep the meatballs good for the cholesterol inspector general. And as I walked back up, I noticed she was hiding behind a plant watching everything we did. And I had to walk back to the car and open up the trunk again for my wife. And I looked at her and said, why didn't you get that the first, you know how a husband is. And uh, that girl was watching and listening to everything. As I walked back in, she was still hiding behind the plant, went into the restroom, took off my suit and tie, put on an old shirt, old pair of pants. And uh, I know my good dress shoes didn't match, but I had forgotten my shoes and left them in the trunk and didn't want to admit that I needed to go back to the trunk for a third time after speaking to Shirley. So I just wore those shoes with the laces loose. And as I walked out with my suit in a hanger, the car running locked with the food inside, she was watching all this menagerie. She just kind of peeked out from behind the plant at me and smiled, you know, as if to say, I know everything you've done and I've got you covered. I thought about the great white throne. Somewhere in heaven, God has recorded every time you've opened that trunk, you've spoken that word, you've thought that thought. Hold your hand here for a moment. Let me set the stage for this, Mark 4.22. 
There it is in Mark. Jesus makes a very bold and bold statement. He says in the midst of his parables, and he's moving on to the parable of the seed, but look at verse 21. Is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be set on a lampstand? And he uses that little parabolic statement to make now a profound theological assertion. There is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. That is one of the most awesome statements Jesus ever made in the scripture. Absolutely nothing is hidden. Absolutely nothing can remain hidden forever. Sometimes circumstances will reveal truth. Sometimes your character will be revealed in the circumstances. Sometimes the law of sowing and reaping will reveal some of what's going on in our lives now. But I want to tell you something, folks. Before God is done with the heaven and the earth, everything that you and I have said or done that is not covered by the blood of Christ shall be unveiled and revealed. And like that little girl hiding behind the tree who watched everything I did and said, God knows. Bo knows, Lowe's knows, but God knows better than either of them. Hear me. And that's what this is about at the end of time. Let the text unfold itself. First, you see God on his throne in chapter 20, uh, verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Now, who is this on the throne? Now, I have no doubt that Christ is right there at his right hand. I have no doubt that the angels, the four cherubim who guard the throne of God repeatedly in the book of Revelation are close by. And in verse 12, when the dead, small and great stand before God and the books were opened, the scripture is clear. This is God on his throne. This is the eternal God on his throne. And there's a statement that defines his presence on the throne. From whose presence the earth and the heaven fled away. What can that possibly mean? From the presence of this majestic, holy, awesome God to be loved and reverenced, from his presence, the heaven and the earth just disappear. Now, I want, to, I want you to, to tie this together with something important you've read in Scripture. Hold your hand here and turn right back to 2 Peter chapter 3. The third chapter of 2 Peter ought to be read in conjunction with Revelation 20. For Peter says in verse 1, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds, by way of reminder, verse 2, so that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, 
and saying, where is the promise of his coming? <laughs> You've been talking about his coming for 2,000 years. He's not coming. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. I hope you are never lulled into thinking that everything will continue just like it was in the beginning. For this, verse 5, they willfully forget. The only way you could be deceived would be to forget this, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water, a reference to God's judgment. But the heavens and the earth which now exist are kept in store by the same word, but reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the day of perdition of ungodly men. There is coming a day of judgment of the ungodly. And in that day, the heavens and the earth are reserved to be destroyed by fire. Verse 8. And beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. I love this. In the middle of this awesome word of judgment is this great statement of verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. He remembers. We might forget, but God remembers. But is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. A reminder that in the mercy of grace and grace of God, it's not his purpose to destroy everything, but having rejected his mercy and grace, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And watch this, the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. That time in 2 Peter 3 is this time in Revelation 20 when the earth and the heavens flee from the throne of God because they are destroyed by the breath of God. And chapter 21 says, all of a sudden the old heavens and the old earth are gone. And there's a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth are passed away. God is on his throne. And he now demonstrates that he's greater than his creation. And he is master of creation. And everything you see will be consumed with fire and judgment and destroyed. And will flee from the presence of this awesome, holy, powerful God. That is why you must never worship nature. That is why you don't worship a tree. That is why you must understand there is a personal God greater than any, quote, force in nature. That is why you must understand that God, the transcendent God, was imminent in Jesus Christ, but he was above his creation, and at the end of time, he will speak in the old heaven, and the old earth will be totally destroyed, and they will flee from his presence. The second thing I want you to see in this text is the dead at the throne. Verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. 
and death and hell delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Now, I believe that the sea probably is symbolic, representing mankind, all the world. I don't believe that's just those who died at sea. All the ungodly who had died in all ages were resurrected. Now, the first resurrection, remember, is the resurrection of the just. That was Christ. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ first and then those Old Testament saints who walked in the streets of Jerusalem, the first fruits, and then those who were raised at the rapture, those who are dead in Christ shall rise first. And then at the end of the, the uh, uh, tribulation period, all the tribulation saints were raised. That's the first resurrection, each one in his order, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And here is the second resurrection. The first resurrection, the first death is a physical death. The second death is an eternal spiritual death. He says it, the second death. The dead are all raised to the throne. Now, now hold your hand here and go back to 1 Corinthians and interpret with me and understand what this means. 1 Corinthians 15. Here is that passage. Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 23. Each one in his own order. Christ, comma, the firstfruits, comma, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming, then comes the end. That is why in John 5, 24 and 29, Christ divided the resurrection unto life and the resurrection unto judgment. And at the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And look at verse 26, class. Now understand this in the light of Revelation 20. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And that is why in this great passage, the sea give up the dead and all death and hell give up those. Now remember, Sheol is divided into paradise and Hades. All the unrighteous dead have been locked in reservation of judgment in Sheol in Hades. But now Hades gives up the dead. Verse 13, death and hell delivered up the dead who were in them for the judgment. And here's the resurrection unto judgment. This is not a resurrection to find out who's saved. If you had been saved, you would already have been raised. This is the resurrection under judgment. Every non-believing person of every age will be raised at this time. And death and hell will deliver them up. That's the second resurrection. And then there is the second death, the eternal death. The resurrections refer to the God, God's order. First the believers, then unbelievers. The death refers individually, our physical, then our eternal spiritual death, which is why the Bible says in verse 14, this eternal final judgment at the end of the millennial reign is the second death. That is so awesome to me as I think about it. It is a final word. It is the final judgment. Never again will anybody be judged. 
Never again will any wrong ever be under conviction. Never again will there be a chance of repentance. Never again will there be a doorway of hope. Never again will there be any grace extended. Never again will there be any forgiveness offered. Never again will anyone have a chance to flee from the wrath to come because the wrath will be here and now. And as I look at the wickedness of the world today, it is really a vision of that second death which ought to break the heart of every believer and ought to fire us for evangelism. You know, I picked up the USA Today this week, and did you see that list resulting from a survey of America's young people? And they talked about the most admired people in America in the top five. Did you, did you see that? In the top five, Tanya Harding, uh, let see if I, Mike Tyson, and O.J. Simpson, three of America's youth's heroes. And when I saw that, I must tell you, a chill went over my spine because it reflects the state of American lost, eternally doomed society without Christ. The dead at the throne. The third thing you ought to note in the text is the books of the throne. Here they are. In verse 12, I saw the dead small and great standing before God and books, plural. Now I want you to understand two things here. First books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. If you will recall in the book of Esther, King Ahasuerus one night couldn't sleep. Have you ever been there? You know, I usually get up and eat a bowl of cereal. Somehow milk. What, what, what do you eat when you can't sleep, huh? Yeah, don't eat those, those full of fat potato chips and make yourself a big peanut butter sandwich and a chocolate milkshake right before you go to bed. But I usually eat a, a bowl of cereal. What, what do you eat when you... How many eat cereal when you can't sleep? <laughs> but that's what I do. It, it helps me to sleep. I'll recommend In fact, I got some old cereal in my closet I'll give you. I'd like to get rid of it. I'm getting tired of eating those crunch berries that have been there since the last time our grandchildren came. But anyway, uh, the books of the throne, when you can't sleep, every king had a set of books and Ahasuerus couldn't sleep. And it was in the middle of Haman's plot against, you remember the Jews. And he got up and he read what the Old Testament scripture calls the books the records of all the works and the history and the chronicles of his kingship. And there he found where Esther's uncle had saved his life by revealing a plot and he felt a responsibility to him. And he said, I want to do something for Mordecai. <laughs> I love that. The king's books. And beside the throne of the king of the universe is a set of books. And the books contain a record of everything everybody in this world has ever done. I believe it's an eternal record. 
And the Bible says as the dead are called to the great white throne, he opens up those books and demonstrates to them that there is a basis for their judgment. Look what you did in 1971. And it is not covered by the blood. Look what you did in 1987. And it is not covered by the blood. Look what you did in 1992. And it is not forgiven because it's not covered by the blood. The books... Are the, are the basis of judgment. Verse 12 says, the dead were judged according to their works. You say, but Mark, I thought that uh, he that believeth not on the Son is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Yes, but God always, the just God, proves that he has a proper basis for judging every single person. No one will miss a hearing before the judge. There, by the way, will not be a jury. And there will not be a jury pool. And there is no court of appeals. And there is no excuse from your date in court. <laughs> you will be there, the dead, small and great. And they're judged by the books. And then he said, there is a book, the book of life. And verse 15 says, anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, I'm going to give you a little problem. I want to give you a, an exegetical problem today. Are you ready for a real tough problem? All right, hold your hand and go back in Revelation to chapter, uh, we'll go back all the way to chapter 3. And look in chapter 3, verse 5, what was said to the church at Sardis. The angel of the church in Sardis said, verse 5, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now get the setting. I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name. We'll move on to chapter 13 and verse 8. And in chapter 13, verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of the life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So first, there's a book of life and then there is the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 17, verse 8. The beast when the great harlot is destroyed, the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Now, there's one reference to the book of life, a reference to the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, and now a reference to the book of life from the foundation of the world. Okay, now I'm just setting you up for the problem. Chapter 22 and verse 19. You know, this is rather awesome. In verse 18, if anyone adds to the things in this book, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the, now there it is again, book of life from the holy city 
and from the things which are written in this book. So now we have the book of life from the foundation of the world, the book of, of life from the, of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, the book of life with a name not written down there, and now the possibility of a name being blotted out of the book of life. Now, let's put that together. Either one, there is a Lamb's book of life into which every name that receives Christ has been written down. Your new name in glory. And most of us think that's the way the Lamb's book of life works. Over here is the Lamb's book of life. And uh, Brittany White accepts Christ. And then an angel goes up and writes on page uh, 5,363,411. What's your middle name, Brittany? Diane. Brittany Diane White. Isn't that a pretty name? And there it is written in the book of life. Now, that's one theory that we get, and maybe God will give her a new name. I don't know. It might be, might be Rachel in heaven. You know, who knows what it might be. But anyway. Now, the second theory is that the book of life has everyone's name who has ever been born written in it. From the foundation of the world, God knew everyone's name. Now, we don't believe you can lose your salvation, so what does he mean when he says, I will blot your name out of the book of life? Well, could it be that every person who's ever been born has his name written in that book of life? And unless you receive Christ, your name is blotted out. And it's blotted out, and all that remains in the book of life are the names of those who have come to God through the means of the blood. In the Old Testament, the blood of the lamb or the blood of an animal. In the New Testament, it is the blood of Christ. And then the scripture said that Jesus said through his angel that when your name remains in the book of life, I will stand and confess it before my father and his holy angels. You know, I, I can kind of uh, foresee and I'm Specu will you let me just speculate a real little bit, just a tad? I can foresee that the book of life is open to all the seas. And here are all these names that start with C that have been blotted out because when they came to the judgment, they'd not been covered by the blood. And so they're blotted out. And he checks to see my name. And God calls out my name and Christ stands up and says, he is mine. Because four times in the New Testament, he says, I will confess you before my Father which is in heaven. I will confess you if your name's there. I will confess you before my Father and his holy angels. But I'll tell you one thing. Either way, the books show the works and the book shows the name. If the book of life is open, it is to reveal to everybody at that second judgment that their name is not there. But you know, one of the greatest things about the gospel is that you'll never be embarrassed. You'll never be embarrassed. If you know Jesus Christ, you will know that your name is on the list. Have you ever gone to reception and you thought your name was on the list and they couldn't find your name and you couldn't get in? 
Have you ever gone to pick up tickets somewhere and you thought your name was on the list and your name's not on the list? Can you imagine the awful sense of regret, the awful sense of sorrow for lack of repentance when we get to glory and that page is opened in the book of life and your name has been blotted out, it's not written in. There's no one there to confess you before the Father. There's a fourth thing that I want you to see in this text, and that is judgment from the throne. Judgment from the throne, because verse 13 says, The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, every one according to his works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Ladies and gentlemen, if I could bend Scripture, if I could somehow reinterpret the Bible to be a universalist, I would love to do that. It grieves me to stand before you and say that some people are lost, eternally lost, because their name is not in the book of life. I would much rather see the whole world saved than some of the world spend eternity in judgment. Do you not feel that way sometimes? But the scripture compels me and the sense of God's justice demands I cannot be a universalist. I have to accept what the Bible says at face value. Those whose names are not written in the book of life will come under eternal judgment, death, and hell. That is, all who were in death and all who were in Hades, two successive realms, all who were there were cast into the lake of fire and suffer the death of eternal separation. Death doesn't mean termination. It means separation, always in the Scripture. Ezekiel said, The soul that sinneth, it shall die, be eternally separated from God. And this verse, once and for all, answers the question of universalism. I wish I could tell you God would find a way to save everybody or excuse everybody's sin, but it's not so. There is judgment from the throne. Death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. Now let's make two statements here and let me clarify this. First, God's purpose for the Christian in judgment is always praise. But secondly, God's purpose for the non-Christian is always justice. It is judgment. There must be justice brought. But God's purpose for the Christian in judgment is praise. Now, now turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and let me show you that in a powerful passage. When Paul is trying to defend his apostleship, he says in verse 4 of chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, I know nothing against myself, yet am I not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels, the boule, the Greek says, which are intentions and motives of the hearts. Now watch. And then each one's praise will come from God. Then every man will have praise from God. You know, God is just waiting to, to bring final judgment on us, not because he wants to say, Mike Towery, boy, I'd like to gig you. 
I, I want to make you miserable. You know why Christ waits for the judgment seat of Christ? So that every believer will have praise of God. You don't get the praise that you really deserve here on earth. You will never get the praise that you deserve on earth. You will never hear all the shouts of acclamation. You will never get all the encouragement you should have. You will never be fully understood, but Jesus understands. You know, one by one, as our four children grew up, they came back to say, Dad, how in the world did you and Mom do it? I don't know how you can raise children and be a pastor and keep your sanity and make sure that the toilet works and the grass is mowed and the storm windows are clean and the car is washed. How can you do it, Dad? How did you do it? I just like to sit back and say, boy, I'm glad I'm on the other side. Amen? Isn't that the way you feel, Bob? <laughs> I don't know how I did it, son, but somehow I did it. My eyes were closed and I made a lot of mistakes, but I made it through. <laughs> You know, nobody will ever understand any one of us in the place where God has put us. But the Bible is very explicit for every child of God. Judgment waits for us, not here at the great white throne, but at the judgment seat of Christ. And then every man will have praise of the Father. Isn't that going to be an exciting time? I mean, Dan, think of all the things you've done. Nobody ever thanked you for them. And then you'll have praise from God. Think of all the things you've been through and nobody ever gave you a word of encouragement. And then shall every man have praise of God. Think of all the times, Larry, you worked day and night to pull something off and make a gospel presentation through music. And not a soul came by and said, that was great. Thank God he's working through you. But you'll get your praise from him. And it's all worth it. But there's a line drawn and in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul makes a clear distinction when he, he talks about the different kinds of, of conviction that come into our lives. In verse 9, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, Corinthians, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us and nothing. Oh, I was hard on you. And you had conviction of the Lord, but that conviction brought you to repentance. Now verse 10, watch this. Conviction which comes from God. Godly sorrow always, not sometimes, always produces repentance, change of mind to salvation, not to be regretted. When you truly repent, and it's God's sorrow that makes you repent. You won't ever regret repenting. Amen. I never knew anybody who genuinely repented, whoever was sorry that they repented. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And the way you understand the difference between an internal feeling which leads you to feel bad about yourself and the other one leads you to feel joy or to make change is one you know comes from the devil and one comes from God. You can always tell the difference. A spirit of condemnation is always from the devil. It produces death. A spirit of judgment that just makes you feel ill with yourself. But the spirit of God always leads to repentance not to be repented of, not to be regretted. And that's the way you can tell, is this feeling I have from God or from the devil? If it leads you just to feel bad about yourself, then it is probably from the devil. 
And rings probably come. Can I turn that down? I've been ringing in my ears all morning here. And I, can you still hear me all right? Okay, I wonder where that was coming from. I got over close. But you see, sorrow of the, of, of, uh, from God always leads you to change. And here is final eternal judgment from the Lord which is judgment on the lost who participate in the second resurrection and are cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. I tell you, folks, without Jesus Christ, there is simply no hope for you. No hope. But the Bible is very clear. If you will see Christ on the cross as dying for you, even though you were a filthy sinner, God reached out to you in advance. Before you ever reached out to him, he's been reaching out to you. And so we can say there is therefore now no condemnation, no great white throne judgment for those who are in Christ. And you don't have to fear when everything you've ever done and said will be open because in the books it's covered by the blood when you receive Christ. When you confess your sin, it's covered by the blood. It's blotted by the blood. It is out of the books. And there is no record George Bernard Shaw in one of his great books said that, you know, in the first half of life, we work hard trying to make a living out of life. And he said, a few of us finally come to our senses and understand that there's a destiny in life for us. Well, he didn't maybe fully understand what the destiny was, but I understand what it is. My destiny is to do the will of God so that I can stand before him in the Christian's judgment and hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And if you will just respond to God's urge, God's pull, God's call, you will be saved and your name will be left in the book of life and your works will be blotted by the blood and you'll miss the great white throne judgment. But if you refuse Christ, there is nothing ahead for you but eternal judgment, eternal death, an eternal separation from the Father. What's my destiny? <laughs> well, in Christ, my destiny is God, and I'm looking forward to Him. Amen and amen. Would you stand with me in prayer? Father, I thank you for the great joy we have of knowing that our name is in the book of life. Draw us to yourself. If there's anyone here who is not absolutely certain that his name is written there. Draw him to yourself today. Speak to Christians who need a church home where they can serve you. And speak to those of us who sense godly sorrow, godly conviction in our lives, working, bringing us to repent, to make a change of heart and mind and soul and direction so we can follow Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.